Hello, this is Melissa Lau, Associate Pastor of Congregational Care and Missions at Wesley Memorial United Methodist Church. Thank you for subscribing to our podcast. Our sermon series is based on the book of Matthew. Please jump in and learn along with us as we go on this exciting journey. Thanks again for listening. God bless. William Wilberforce was born on August 24th, 1759. Maybe you've seen the movie Amazing Grace. There's a picture of the, of the uh, movie poster, Amazing Grace. It's a really good movie, actually. I recommend you watch it. Um, he was born in 1759, and in 1780, at the age of 21, William Wilberforce, a young white man, uh, was at a party with his friend, William Pitt. And William Pitt and William Wilberforce, almost on a whim, decided to run for parliament. And so they did, almost like a prank. But it turns out William Wilberforce would not lose his seat in Parliament for the next 50-plus years and would serve in the Parliament in England. At the age of 25, William Wilberforce became a follower of Jesus Christ, and his life was radically transformed. Soon, though, he found himself in a conundrum. How could he serve a nation in the Parliament that at the same time was engendering and supporting the social evil of slavery. It was a horrific practice, as all, all of us know. Men and women being taken from their homes forcibly from the West Indies and Africa, from Jamaica, from Haiti, and they would be stacked up like cords of wood on the bottom of boats, lashed to masts, put in thumbscrews. And if they even survived the horrific journey across the Atlantic Ocean, which many of them did not, then they would live their, their lives in indentured servitude until they died. William Wilberforce and his newfound faith was at a crossroads. He could not reconcile his faith in Christ with the evil that the British Empire was propagating around the world as the primary, one of the primary superpowers at the time. So, William Wilberforce decides to resign from his position in the parliament and to become a pastor. But he first, he goes to his mentor, John Newton, first. John Newton had been a slave ship captain for decades and been doing this work for decades before his own conversion as an older man. And he would seek to become ordained as an Anglican priest. John Newton's story is truly one that God will turn around even the most wretched of lives and wretched of people. For in April of 1748, when William Wilberforce was a little boy, John Newton was reading Thomas Akempis' book, The Spirit of God. Despite John Newton's hatred of religion, he began to read and he was disturbed by the question, what if these things I'm reading are true? And it worried him profoundly. If they were true, then he knew he was doomed. So, he knew he was living a wicked life, and he converts to Christ, but he would wrestle with the sins of his past for years and years. But to the point, he would be so overcome by the grace of God, he knew he was such a wicked man for what he had done for so many years. He was overwhelmed by the grace of God in his life, and he would eventually take pen to paper and write these famous words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I'm see. This was the man that William Wilberforce would go to for advice. Wilberforce says to Newton, 
I cannot reconcile my faith to the social evil of slavery. I must quit my place in Parliament. And Newton would say these words to Wilberforce that would change the course of history. He would say, the Lord has raised you up for the good of the nation. Do not avoid your place in the marketplace, but redeem it for the glory of God. And much like Queen Esther of the Old Testament, Wilberforce was raised up for such a time as this. And so, in Christmas Eve of 1787, at the ripe age of 28, William Wilberforce would stand before Parliament and proclaim, my great aim is the abolition of the trade. I will not rest until I've affected its cause. The room was silent. His peers were quiet. They knew that to abolish slavery would have dire economic fallout for their nation. And that day, William Wilberforce would make lifelong enemies until the day he died. But for the next 20 years, William Wilberforce worked and got voted down. He was ridiculed. He was mocked. Until February of 1807, England would vote to abolish the trade. In 1808, the next year, the United States of America would vote to do the same thing. Emancipation was sweeping the globe, but it took a Moses in the form of William Wilberforce. Someone asked him after this vote went his way, the way that he had been praying for, agonizing for. They asked him, what will you do next? And he, he said, I will look for something else to abolish. In 1849, the nation of England outright slavery, outlawed slavery outright. And of course, the Emancipation Proclamation in these United States of America was signed in 1865 by Abraham Lincoln. But a question that rang in William Wilberforce's ears, a question that rang in John Newton's ears, in millions of other ears around through the history books, they were burdened for change in this world, a question would reverberate in their minds they could not shake, and so they did something. And the question was this, what did you do for the least of these? If you did it to the least of these, you did it for me. Did you make a margin for the marginalized? Today, of course, is Consecration Sunday. It is Christ the King Sunday. This is the end of the Christian calendar as we begin Advent next week. And this text is perfect for today. This text of Matthew 25, where Jesus judges all the nations, probably a number too great to count, and he separates them by sheep and by goats. And we'll see in Matthew 25 that our actions do indeed have eternal consequence to the heart and the mind of God. This is Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, that's a lot of angels, when he will sit on the throne of his glory, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another, as a sh shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand, and the goats to his left. And the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you take, took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous, the righteous will answer him. Lord, 
When was it that we saw you hungry or gave you food or thirsty or gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you as sick or in prison and visited you? And then the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it for one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, the same question, interesting. When was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and you did not ta- we did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life. So both the righteous and the unrighteous ask the same question. When do we see you? Well, I didn't see you. I didn't see you next to the stoplight. I didn't see you on the side of the street. I saw just a homeless person. And Jesus is equating himself with the poor. The son of God, God in flesh, he's equating himself as a homeless person. Fascinating. The heart of God is always for those that are marginalized. Jesus himself was homeless. He had nowhere to live. He didn't have two pennies to rub together. He had nowhere to lay his head, as he said. And Jesus didn't just gravitate to the poor. He lived with the poor. The apostles, when the church first formed, they gathered money and food and gave it away to the poor. As today, the Spirit of God has always directed his people toward the poor, if we're listening. As Mother Teresa said, God is always with the poor. If you want to know where God is, go be with the poor. So another key aspect, though, of this passage from Matthew 25 is that Jesus seems to be saying that in order to get into heaven, it's by your works. That we did these good things, we were the righteous, we did the right thing, and we helped the poor, we helped the downcast, we helped the the downtrodden, the marginalized, and that you get into heaven. This doesn't seem like a message of grace by faith, which is the classic Christian teaching. But those of us who have been in the church long enough is that know that you cannot take a doctrine based on one piece of the Bible. You have to zoom out and look at the scripture as a whole. If we zoom out and see the entirety of scripture, we know that faith precedes works. We know that the Spirit of God has to help us do good works. God has to help us even know who God is at all. That's the prevenient grace of God. That we know that without that, without faith, we can't even do these things that Jesus says that happen in Matthew 25. Let us remember Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The word while there is the operative word. While we were sinners, he died for us. He didn't wait for me and you to clean ourselves up, amen? That'd be a long time if he had to wait for that. He didn't, he saw us in the midst of our disorders and our addictions and our lying and who knows what else. He sees us in the midst of all of it and says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. In that context, we know Jesus is not saying it is by our works that we are saved in Matthew chapter 25. 
Because no amount of morality, no amount of giving, no amount of virginity, no amount of social justice will get you into heaven, as important as those things may be. We cannot save ourselves, to put it simply. It is all a work of Jesus Christ on the behalf of us. Purely a work of grace. This was the radical grace that transformed John Wesley's life, that transformed St. Augustine's life, when they realized it had nothing to do with the merits of our ability or our works, but it was purely a gift from God to us. So if salvation is a gift from God, and we know it is, and we're saved by faith, by the grace of God in our lives, and yet after that, well, then what will you do? For us as Christ followers, the same question rings that rang in the ears of Wilberforce, Newton, what will you do for the least of these? The passage here is not dealing with the root of salvation, it's dealing with the fruit of salvation. How do we know that we're saved by grace? Well, we have a changed and a changing life. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, as Wesley would say. There's fruit. That's how we know. You're immediately led to bear fruit. Immediately after my own conversion at the age of 20, 20 years old, looking back, I see it now that God brought someone to my mind that I hadn't thought of for 50, like 10 years at that point. A childhood friend of mine was in prison, federal prison for five years. I hadn't thought of him, you know, who knows how long. And looking back, I see that God's brought him to my mind. And I wrote this guy some letters. I sent him a Bible, which got sent back to me because I, re- I didn't know that you can't just send prisoners books in prison. <laughs> but immediately, God brought him to my mind to be focused on this, those that, need, that are voiceless, that are marginalized, that have no advocate. And I was led directly to this friend of mine. It wasn't even my idea. It's not to make me look good. So it does ask the question, how do we cultivate a heart for the poor, the prisoner, the powerless? Because when we stand before God one day, will we be able to say with a clear conscience, God, I did all I could do. I did all I could do. I will not rest until this trade or evil is overturned. And I just have one phrase that we can remember today. One way that I think is really good for us to be cultivating a heart for the poor, and it is this. Make a margin for the marginalized. Make a margin for the marginalized. Here's what I mean. Throughout Scripture, God's heart is for the immigrant, for the widow, for the outcast, for the sick, for the, go on and on. Over 2,000 verses in the Bible show us this. We can't claim to have God's heart and then do nothing for those, because this is where God, it's where his heart is. It's where it always has been, where it always will be. Look at Leviticus 23, verse 22, where God commands the nation of Israel, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. God commands the nation of Israel to leave a margin. You can take the harvest but leave a margin for the poor, and don't take it, but be a people of mercy. Now, this idea of leaving a margin for others to benefit from, it stands in stark contrast to the typical American mindset of, I got a raise, let's max it out. I got a raise, let's max it out. I got more money, I'm going to spend it. (laughs) Even if you don't get a raise, I know people that still max it out. But what if God wants us to leave margins 
in our budgets, in our lives, that then we are able to leverage that margin for God's glory and for the poor, to make a margin for the marginalized. We definitely need margins in our lives. We have to leave those places, those buffers, if you will, because if we don't, if, we're, if our lives are always running over the edge, we're spilling over the margins of our lives, whether it's your emotional margin or your budgetary margin or professional margin, it always leads to burnout. If we do not have margins, we will be perpetually unprepared for the future and overwhelmed for when that future arrives. And so even without a margin, we're not prepared to be generous to those in need, maybe when we could be. So here's, what that, here's one, a few ways what that could look like. Um, Ken Lyon said this to me the other day. It's a good rule. It's called the 80-10-10 rule. Live on 80, give 10, save 10. It's very similar to what John Wesley famously said, make all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. But when I hear that, and that's true. It's very true, very good. But it makes me think back to when I was 23 years old, and I was in between jobs, and I was paying my way through seminary. And I was so, I was po, as they say. I was so po, I couldn't afford the O and the R, okay? I mean, I was broke, <laughs> as a joke. Um, barely paying rent. I, I sold my, like, a guitar to pay my rent. I mean, it was crazy. But, so if, if you don't have much, it's tough. Margins aren't really an option at some point pieces, times of our lives. And I think God understands that. He doesn't want us to give into debt. I think he wants us to get out of debt so that we can be free to give in abundance. You know, sometimes that's how it is. And I, but I realized, even when I was Poe, age 23, God taught me a lesson about tithing, which was, if I can't trust you to be generous with 10 bucks, how can I trust you to be generous with 10,000? You get to be generous with the small thing first, then in time, I will be bless you, and then you can be faithful with more later. It's like a law of reciprocity. Um, even Jesus would teach that. It's not karma, but it's teaching that when you give, you shall receive. And you receive, then you can give. And it just keeps going. As, as Dwight Moody famously said, God will give you thousands of dollars if you won't allow any of it to stick. He'll allow thousands of dollars to, to flow through your hands if you don't allow any of it to stick. I always love that. So, John Wesley famously um, encapsulated this in his own life, where when he was a young man getting started as a young Anglican priest, he was probably, would, we would de- de- determine today to be someone that's OCD. I think we could look back on John Wesley. He journaled feverishly. He kept records of everything. Um, we actually have a letter of John Wesley in the history room of this church, by the way. It's very, very cool. But as a young man, John Wesley said, how much money do I need to live this year? He's a single guy, so it's not quite equivalent to some of us, but he said, I only need 28 pounds of English currency to live for that that year. So I'll live on 28 pounds. Now, today, I I, I found a calculator online. I want to know how much money is that in today's money. It is $7,358.80. So John Wesley said, I can live off $7,000. That's pretty amazing. So whatever I make above that, I'll give it away. This is an extreme example, but it's good. The next year, John Wesley made 30 pounds. So he had two extra, he gave it away. 
he gave it away. And he realized, I like that. I like the way this feels. This is, this is good. So every year, he lived off 28 pounds. Many years later, he would make 1,500 pounds off his writings, and he would give it all away. It reminds me of the pastor Rick Warren of Saddleback Church in Southern California, who famously wrote the book, The Purpose Driven Life. And he does, he does the exact same thing. He has a set salary. He has made tens of millions of dollars off that book, and he gives it all away to help fight AIDS in Africa. Now, we talk about this sort of message of making a margin for the marginalized and tithing and pledging and all of that. It's true that most American Christians, we struggle to give 5%, let alone the biblical idea of 10. But at the end of John Wesley's life, he was living on 10 and giving away 90. Again, not pr- practical for everybody, but it's amazing. I hear these stories, I hear these illustrations, and it makes me think of this story of Matthew 25. What did you do for the least of these? Did you leverage your margins for the marginalized? Was all the houses, all the stuff, all the things we have, was it all worth it? Was it all worth it? Was it ever really enough? I mean, was it ever really enough? When is enough enough, right? We're coming up on Christmas. and Now, as many Americans, and I'm guilty of this as well sometimes, we don't, know the, we don't know when enough is enough. We don't know when it's enough car or enough house. But here's the truth, is that if we don't build a margin in our lives of generosity, um, it will never be enough. The margin keeps our hearts in check. It keeps our desire for more in check. It, it checks our own sense of greed, and it actually improves the lives of other people around us, and it makes us a happier, holier person. As John Wesley said, a holy person is a happy person. I saw a Gallup poll a few years ago, and the question in the poll was, how much more money would you need to be comfortable? And the, the poll people, probably about 3,000 or so people uh, responded, and um, reg- regardless of their economic status, whether they made $30,000 a year, 60 or 90 or 150, this is really interesting, regardless of how much money they made, the average answer was just 30% more. If I just had 30% more, just a little more, and I'll be happy. Now, don't get me wrong, making extra money is nice. It's like that country song says, they say money didn't buy happiness. Well, it can buy me a truck. It can buy me a boat. Sometimes it comes in handy. Sometimes we need it, and that's, that's the truth. And God knows, we, God knows what we need and will provide for our needs. But when we make a margin, it helps us be on guard against all types of greed. In, Matthew, um, in the book of Matthew, Jesus taught on that when he said literally, be on guard against all types of greed. For a person's life does not consist of what they possess. And we've heard this over our lives. There's celebrities, politicians, multimillionaires, billionaires. And they all would say it was lonely at the top. I got there and there was nothing there. So it is a question of why are we alive? Are we here just to gather and then move on? Or are we here to give? I think we're, we're called to be known for a people of what we give and not just what we possess. That may we be known as a people who do build margins in our lives, not for our glory or our benefit, but the benefit of the world. 
And my friends, when, when churches really grasp this and they start to do it, individual lives one by one, churches explode. Ministries just catch on fire. And lives are transformed. I can't explain it, but I've seen it happen time and time again. And you know what? It's, it's kind of an adventure. It's kind of exciting. I remember, when, again, when I was 23, and I was Poe. And God said, I want you to tithe. I want you to get, I think it was Compassion International. I don't forgot what it was. But it was way more money than I felt comfortable giving. Because I could hardly make ends meet. And he was like, no, I want you to give this. And I did. Not again, not about me. But it was, it was exciting. Because you knew that God was leading your life. And today, as we have Consecration Sunday... Before you go, after this final song, um, there are, uh, there's bread, of course, you can take, please take a bread, but also on these tables are homeless kits that we have assembled. There's Ziploc bags, soap, water, food, toothbrush, toothpaste, some of you donated, socks, uh, those of you that donated, thank you to these. Take one, leave it in your car. There will come a time you'll use it. And you can simply say here, and it is, it is a great little gift for someone. Again, just building that margin, providing that extra so that when you're ready to use it, it's there, right? So hopefully this will be a, 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 a living example um, as we stand together. Let's stand and I'll pray for us. God, today is, it is a consecration Sunday for these pledges for the next year. We don't just give you a pledge. We want to give you our heart. Like John Newton or William Wilberforce, when we are fully cognizant of the grace that you have shown us, the best offering we could give you, God, is our heart. Because that's all you're really after anyway. It's for us to know your joy. And for us to be a living sacrifice, people that build margins for the marginalized and that bless others. God, the grace you poured out upon the world is incredible. We celebrate it now. We worship you now for it. But we also pray for those that maybe are watching or in our world say they have no idea. They have no idea what they're missing out on. Maybe just as many of us did before too. We didn't know what we were missing out on. And our, when our eyes are opened to the reality, God, of what you've done for us, we have to be a generous people because you are so ab above and beyond abundant to us. What lavish, extravagant love you have poured out upon your children. We come to you with open hearts and open hands as we sing our final song this morning.